Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. Hello, my name is Jason Taché, a staff writer with the American Bar Association Journal, and this is the Legal Rebels Trailblazers podcast, where we talk to pioneers in law. One pioneer that we have with us today is Adriana Linares. Hey, Adriana. Hey, Jason. How are you doing today? I'm great. This is so exciting. It's great to have you here. Well, I appreciate it. So you are at LawTech Partners, and you traipse around Florida and the country <laughs> talking about legal technology issues. But for those that don't know you, give us a little bit of your background. Yeah, so let me just start by making sure everyone knows I'm not a lawyer, which I consider sort of a badge of honor to be among the legal profession and having been here for so long and it's just a weird thing, right? I'm not a lawyer and yet I walk into law offices all the time and have these great interactions with lawyers and office managers and paralegals and talk to them about legal technology. So when I graduated from college and then later went on to get a master's degree, neither of which have to do much with legal technology, I like to say that I went through the School of Hard Knocks at some of Florida's largest law firms where I spent about eight years working in the IT departments and really sort of digging in and understanding how lawyers, the tools that they use and how lawyers and their support staff and the team around them use technology and tools and services to run their businesses. So many years ago, I did that inside of some law firms and then it got hard inside of large law firms. You know, I think anybody who's ever worked in a big law firm, even as a non-lawyer, will tell you that there's a lot of grind and pressure and sometimes your spirit can get a little bit uh, hazy. It doesn't always shine. So at some point I thought, wow, I wonder if I can go out and be a consultant on my own and help maybe some smaller solos, small law firms understand, you know, the types of tools that big law firms use and help empower them. And that's kind of where I started and where I came from here in Florida. And now I've got this little consulting company with my partner, Alan McKenzie, that we've had for about 14 years now. We've helped uh, law firms of all shapes and sizes and across the country and sometimes even get to travel internationally to help. That's great. And so we're talking about legal technology primarily today. So I was hoping that to give us kind of a grounding in what we're talking about. How do you define legal technology? It's a pretty sprawling term. It is. So the way I would define it is thinking about the products, tools, services, providers, consultants, and experts that help run the business side of a law firm. Lawyers, as far as I've ever seen, certainly understand how to research and apply law in a way that helps their clients. They don't need a lot of help from me on that and from my, you know, my colleagues, but where they might need some help is, you know, identifying the tools and services that will help them with their practice management. So I might say that legal technology is a subset of practice management. And then typically when somebody asks me, what do I mean by practice management? I say that it means, you know, technology 
plus marketing, plus management, plus accounting and finance. So those are sort of, you know, the spokes of the practice management wheel that help a law practice be successful. Technology is a really important part of that because now technology layers on top of everything, right? Management, marketing, and accounting and finance. So you just can't talk about those things without talking about technology. And so you've been up to this now for 14 years, as you said. What was the original vision in 2004 and how have you seen it evolve over these years? (laughs) Well, my original vision, and I really thought I would be further along than I am, was to help lawyers. And of course it was, you know, imagine I was, you know, almost 20 years younger when I started my whole legal technology career. I thought, well, I can certainly save all these lawyers hours of time and frustration and just helping them understand how to use their computers better. You know, if I could just help them use their plain old computers better, then we'd be able to move up the chain of all those other parts of practice management that are important. So my vision was really just, and it's enjoyable, right? I absolutely love what I do, which is weird because I'm helping lawyers and their staff all the time, but it's really fun. And that was my vision was I'm just going to kind of create this little career for myself because there seems to be a lot of opportunity and a lot of need and help lawyers use technology better. Super simple, I thought. (laughs) And so it sounds like it ended up not being so simple. Where did the bumps in the road begin to appear? (laughs) You know, actually, it's still kind of simple, but that's, to me, a little bit of the problem is that here I am 20 years later and my peers will maybe hopefully agree with me And we're still covering a lot of the basic trainings that we did 20 years ago. I just did a conference on Monday. It was a panel of vendors looking to sell sophisticated e-discovery services to lawyers, which by the way, I'm not an e-discovery expert. I actually completely stay out of that world. And I said to them, you know, they were looking to me like, how do we communicate with lawyers? You know, that these tools might be helpful. I said, it's, and this is obviously not all lawyers, but we're talking about a big swath of them. They still need a lot of help with the tools that they use the most and understanding how to maximize them before they can really wrap their heads around advanced technologies. So we still do a ton of Microsoft Word, Outlook, Excel, and Adobe Acrobat training and conversions and migrations. I think at least three times a year, I'm still doing word perfect to word conversions. And those are typically for government agencies, but they're still, and not that word perfect is outdated or old, but they want to move. And the profession, you know, that ship sailed a long time ago on most of the profession. And then we still have a lot of lawyers and paralegals and staff that might be either in smaller firms or with um, the judiciary or with government agencies that are still sitting there sort of stuck. So I would say that it's still a little bit simple and the fact that we can do a lot of the same things we've always done, but it's definitely become more complicated because of internet technologies and web-based technologies and the ability for lawyers to quickly subscribe and start using software that they didn't do before, right? So years ago, it was, well, you're going to need a server and it's going to cost you this much and you're going to need a body that sort of babysits that server. And when there's an update... You know, you got to get the update and then you've got to get the updates out on all the machines. And a lot of law firms didn't invest in that type of technology because it was expensive and they looked at it as a burden and it was. And so now, you know, over the past 10 years or so with great legal technology and legal specific programs that have come out, you've got 
implementations that we can do in a day for big firms and install programs like Clio and NetDocuments. So while it got more complex in that way, those technologies are so easy and simple to use that it's easy to train. So I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but it's still simple. It's a little bit complex at times, but um, we're still touching a lot of the basic stuff and at the same time implementing some of these great new technologies that are affordable and easy to use and secure, thankfully. So you spend a lot of the last 14 years trying to explain technologies to lawyers and law firms. And one of the things I find in my reporting in the legal technology space is that when it comes to translating law and technology, there's these two pedantic languages that each community uses, and they don't translate well between them. (laughs) So I'm curious what you have found works in regards to improving that translation. There's two typical answers that I find myself giving all the time about that, and they come down to business cases and trust. So taking the terms and the reasons and explaining why technology is important to the practice of law it comes down to one thing for lawyers, and that's the business case. Why would I need to do this? Why would I spend that kind of money? How's it really going to help me? And then the other side that's really interesting about that is anybody could give them the right answers. You know, those those are always probably typically going to be the same. But honestly, there's such a major trust factor involved with lawyers that, you know, it's a trustability factor. And I say that all the time, if the lawyer trusts the person, the consultant, the vendor, the expert, I mean, I guess this is really everybody, but specifically in this world of telling a law firm that they've got to spend money in order to get to a place that maybe they don't even really care to get to because they're doing just fine. They really have to trust the source that that's coming from and being able to explain the business case and the terms in a way that a lawyer can process is really where those two worlds meet and make out. So in going through the services that you provide on your website, one of the things that jumped out to me was technology audits that you do. Yeah. And I'm curious about this. The journal has a year-long cybersecurity series coming out next year, and we're going to start it with a discussion about cybersecurity audits and uh, culture change. And so I'm curious from the non-cybersecurity perspective, What do these audits look like? What are you looking for? What type of standards are you using? And ultimately, what are you finding when you do these things? So that's a great question. And I love talking about technology audits because it's one of those terms that until a lawyer hears that it's a thing or a law firm or an administrator, it doesn't necessarily come to mind. And I think that's because often, you know, the technology piece of the practice is so separated from the business side and the practical side. Anyway, yeah, we started doing legal technology audits several years ago, and they're really popular and helpful. And what we do is there's two sides to the audit, and I'm not even sure which one is more important. I joke around that we're kind of like Sears. There's the hardware part and then the softer side. So the first half of an audit is really delving into the infrastructure of a law firm. And sometimes it can be a three-person law firm, Sometimes it's a 30-person law firm or a 100-person law firm, but the infrastructure comes down to what hardware is on the desktops, what scanners are people using, if any, what do the copiers look like? Are you capturing client matter data when you're making copies or sending a fax, which we don't do too much of, but you know they're still around in some practices. 
what do you have for a server? Where is the server? Are you doing the backups on the server? Who's managing the server and its updates? And then also a component of that that's become really popular is how are you remote accessing all that information that's important? So there's this whole infrastructure piece, which is the hardware side, pretty much, and a little bit of software, obviously. And then almost more importantly, because that stuff is just so black and white, you know, technology, it's either good, it's bad. It's either old, it's new. It either needs to be replaced or it doesn't. The harder side, which I think, again, is almost more important, is the social side of how law firms are using technology. So we spend a lot of time interviewing the people that work in a law firm. So we'll go in and they'll give us a conference room and they will schedule every secretary, if it's a smaller firm, every paralegal and every attorney, or they'll sort of pick maybe a group at a time will come in and we ask them how they're using all the technology that we discovered that they have. Sometimes there's a group that doesn't even know that another practice area has some technology that they could use or some software package. A lot of times we're doing one right now at a decent size firm down in South Florida that's using what I refer to as a traditional software package. And they're trying to be a little bit more cloud-based. I'm based out of Florida. My partner's in Tucson. And we just had a Hurricane Irma come through here and just teach everyone a lesson about, you know, thinking about the cloud. So we're doing this audit and this firm, the, the staff and the paralegals who are typically the, you know, incredibly resourceful users of technology had so many workarounds built into this traditional package and little by little, we kept unraveling, like, you know, how they weren't using document automation, right? Or they were putting a lot of information into a comments field, which is basically data prison, as far as we see it. You can't get the data and extract it out of a comments field, right? It's not separated, right? So it's not structured. It's not structured. It's trapped. It's kind of like when I find address books in Microsoft Word documents. I tell them, I go, you can't put that there. It's data prison. We can't get it out. So learning how the staff has either because of a lack of training or the lack of a feature in a tool that they have, how they're using all that and then figuring out how to give them that need, that service, that tool, that function back in a new modern world is really important. So we do the hardware piece, we do the social side, which you know involves a lot of interviews and talking to people. And then we hand them a report and say, you know, here's what we see. Here's what you're doing right. Here's what needs some improvement. And here's where we suggest you go. And most of it these days is moving from hardware in the office to cloud-based services. And that's not necessarily an easy thing these days because, you know, a lot of the traditional practice management programs are truly all-in-one programs that allow law firms to run the back office and the front office. So they get case management and they get time billing and accounting and they all want to go cloud. And yet we're still looking for that magical, perfect cloud-based practice management program. So it's a little hard. So when we were talking earlier about simplicity and complexity in doing this, this is where it can get a little technically complex because now we've got to figure out how to give them what they had, which maybe lacked some user interface friendliness and some features, give them what they want, which is security or built-in security, I should say, mobility, and a lot of new features and functions that are in a user-friendly environment. So that's kind of the end result of an audit is, you know, here's how you're doing. Here's where you could do better. Here's how other firms your size are doing. Here's some industry standards. Here's the average number of years that a 
law firm is keeping their laptops based on surveys from the ABA Legal Technology Resource Center in the Law Practice Management Division. So it's a lot of that type of information. And hopefully, I mean, I, I know it's helpful, but hopefully those types of audits for firms really gives them a good idea of how they could improve. And so with all this time checking out various law firms, technology situations, I'm sure you have some horror stories. And now <laughs> you don't sure. need to name names, but okay. are there any any particular ones that stick out in your mind? Yeah, there are a lot of standard practices that we all know shouldn't be changed, but yet I see them changed in law firms all the time. And a really good example is passwords. What typically happens is when Microsoft Exchange and Active Directory get installed and all the security that goes around, you know, that sort of infrastructure, let's say that it is set up so that you have to change your password every 45 days. And so the IT person, whether they're outsourced or in-house, you know, sets it for 45 days. And then 45 days come along and everybody's, you know, prompted to change their password. And then one person whose name is usually on the sign outside and probably has a corner office, gets annoyed that he or she has to change their password. So that person will go to the IT person and say, I don't want to have to change my password. And the poor IT person says, well, it's kind of all or nothing. And then that person will say, turn that off. And then, you know, we almost have to turn it off. And by we, I mean, we, the collective IT people who are being paid and told what to do by that person we have to turn that sort of thing off. So a lot of times it's convenience in exchange for best practices or security, which is obviously something we talk about a lot. That's a typical example. Another thing I see too is believing that someone else is knowledgeable in taking care of the infrastructure. So another good example is backups. Backups are just critical. And especially in, again, quote, traditional environments where there's a server and if the power goes out or the server blows up or a hurricane blows through, there has to be a good backup. So a lot of times people in leadership in law firms, again, whether it's, you know, a managing paralegal or an office administrator or, you know, the lawyer who's in charge or the, quote, young lawyer who knows everything about technology They'll have an IT person or, again, whoever that resource might be who says, backup ran last night, backup's working, backup's working. And then when it comes the time to actually get that backup to unbackup and become, you know, the new set of data or the old new, it doesn't work. And that's because backups aren't being tested, which is, again, like a standard principle in IT management is test your backups. So things like that, which aren't even legal specific, I mean, these are just good IT practices, are often overlooked, not followed up on, set aside. I think back to that whole password thing, you know, attorneys are so trusting. Everybody knows their password sometimes. And like one of my favorite stories to tell is this law firm fired a secretary one day on a Friday and we're expecting the new secretary to show up on Monday to replace her. Well, when the new secretary didn't show up on Monday morning, I was there to train her. We were afraid that something had happened to her. Well, what had actually happened is when they fired the secretary on Friday, they took away her credentials and disabled her account, but they didn't do anything to her attorney's account. So of course, she knew his password and she just logged in through Outlook Web Access, found the new secretary's email and 
you know, a little practical joke, sent an email that said, hey, thanks, we decided to go in a different direction. You don't need to show up for work on Monday. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> thinking about those procedures when you let someone go and expanding outside of, again, the norm, which would be disable her account, take her fob away, you know, change the door codes in a legal environment, because it's what I I often call a law firm, an open society, the way we call, you know, the way colleges and universities are that anybody can walk onto the campus and have access to the library and walk into the cafeteria. I think law firms are like that. You know, we have an open society. Once you walk inside the walls of a law firm, you're, you know, often just a trusted person and you can have access to whatever you want. And then when you leave, if you happen to know how to take it with you, we don't even think about that, right? So Definitely a lot of horror stories like that, that I hope over the years as technology and uh, security practices are becoming more and more part of the normal practice of law and is getting better, I'm pretty sure. Well, to shift gears a little bit, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the consulting you do with the Florida Bar Association. Sure. They were one of the first in the country, maybe the first you can clarify to create a technology CLE. Uh, yeah. And kind of on the forefront of that. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. I'd love to talk about that. So I'm based in Florida and have worked here my entire career. You know, I work across the country, but this is sort of my home base. And I was really lucky a few years ago, a couple of my friends and, you know, colleagues, friends, their lawyers became bar presidents back to back, Greg Coleman and then Ray Abedin after him. And they were really focused on technology, which the Florida bar hadn't necessarily focused on that. I mean, you've got 80 to 100,000 lawyers that they're, you know, doing the best job they can for making decisions, policies, rules, all that stuff. And technology was sort of one of those things that maybe hadn't floated to the forefront yet. Well, Greg Coleman and Ray Abedin decided that it was time that the bar started paying more attention to how they could help their members with technology and practice management and security So they brought me in as a consultant to the Board of Governors. So my job, the way I kind of look at it and what I help them with is helping these 50 some odd people understand the pressing issues and training them on what does encryption mean, right? And why is it important? And why should we be teaching lawyers about that? So what I have the privilege of doing is regularly meeting and talking to them and discussing with them sort of what are the projects we want to push to the front of this year or that year. So Greg's year a few years ago, it was really critical to just sort of set a footing for the fact that the bar was going to start paying attention to technology. So we sort of took down and redesigned their practice management advisory program, introduced a bunch of technology member benefits that the bar had great member benefits, you know, car rental, hotel, insurance, a couple of technology service providers, but not enough so that you had a good choice with discounts from. So we went through a big vetting process and they grew that program. And then I started teaming up with one of the board of governors. His name is John Stewart. He is uh, my man, as I like to say, when we want to get stuff done, now that Greg and Ray have left their presidencies. And, you know, now every time a president leaves, I'm I'm looking around going, okay, who's, who's my next person? So I'm excited about our current president, Heiger, Michael Heiger and Michelle and Michelle Suskauer. They keep pushing the plans that Ray and Greg sort of started with, which is, look, we've got to help our lawyers understand technology better. And so one of the ways that 
we thought about doing that. And I worked very closely with John Stewart, who's um, again on the board of governors and hopefully will be Florida bar president in 2018 and 19. I said, well, you know, how else can we do it other than through CLE? You know, it's just one of those things that lawyers pay attention to other than the things that lawyers have to pay attention to, you know, following ethics guidelines, you know, professionalism rules and thinking about confidentiality, all the things that we know lawyers have in their heads. But then what is a way that the bar can signal that technology is important and it's something you have to pay attention to? And through John, we were able to pretty easily, and I say that with big giant air quotes because nothing is done easily when you're talking about a, a state bar association, make a change to the CLE rules that now include three technology CLE credits that are required, which wasn't a huge burden. It was 30 to start with. Now it's 33 and it's over a three-year period. And that was cool and exciting in Florida was the first, and as far as I know, is the only, but there are a lot of other states that have been calling John and talking to him about how and why he did that. And then I always like to say too that three hours is nothing, right? We're talking, we're making lawyers sit through one hour of technology-specific CLE a year, and that's nothing. That That's not going to get anybody anywhere. But I do like to say that really that's just a signal from the bar saying this is important. And I really appreciate that. So that was really cool and exciting and continues to be a very cool part of what I do. And what we're focusing on next is security. And you mentioned that the ABA Journal is going to do a long series on security. I think it's critical at every level to understand security. So our next kind of big project that we're working on is helping lawyers securely communicate with their clients and figuring out a way to do that. Because You know, when I say to lawyers, what are the three ways that you communicate with clients the most? Their email, phone calls, and occasionally, and more and more often, text messaging, which are, you know, inherently non-secure if we think about it. So we're working on that and working on incubators, which we think are very powerful and can do a lot, especially in a state like Florida, and uh, client portals. We love the idea of secure client portals to help with that push toward helping lawyers communicate more securely with their clients. So it's been a lot of fun. The bar is incredibly enthusiastic. Their leadership is really into it. I mean, it's it's amazing how much they can squeeze in. I mean, they've got disciplinary things to deal with, Supreme Court things to deal with, you know, all the other parts of running the bar association, but technology has been critical. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. I wish every other state would start, and not that they're not, because I know I see some movement, but I really think Florida's at the forefront of that. And so as we begin to wrap up, I wanted to ask you about just the process that you went through in regards to starting law tech partners. Sure. I teach at a law school and I'm noticing a lot of up and coming lawyers or recent graduates are getting more and more interested into legal technology and want to move into that field. And I'm somewhat at a loss at times (laughs) to give them good advice to help them move forward. You know, you can recommend a job posting that you see occasionally, but I was curious, speaking from your experience, what advice would you give to those looking to either move into legal technology or legal technology consulting? Sure. I would encourage, as I do everyone, make sure you've got the basics covered. You know, I went to a hackathon once, maybe. Was it a hackathon? I think it was at a prestigious law school. Actually, it was at the end of the hackathon where the students were showing what they had built 
And one of them or the team had built a program that would allow you to redact PDF files and a bunch of other things. And I just sat there and I, and I raised my hand at the end and I said, hey, I'm just curious, what did you build that tools like Adobe Acrobat and Power PDF and Foxit don't already do? And they looked at me as did their professors and had no idea what I was talking about, right? They didn't know that there were these tools that already did that. And so my first advice would be don't ignore the basics or assume that there's a layer of knowledge, basic technology competence that everybody already knows. So I'd start with definitely really diving into understanding PCs and Macs and then truly understanding all of the different companies and programs and services that already exist and that are cropping up left and right. And it's hard to keep up these days. It's really hard to keep up. But um, looking at good news resources like the journal and Technolawyer and Lawyerist is really important. And then I think too, taking the time to work in a law firm and understand how that law firm is run from how does a lawyer capture his time and turn it into a bill is really important. And we assume that that's something lawyers and law firms have down pat because they've been doing it for so long, but you'd be surprised at the practices that you find when you sit down and dig your heels into a law firm and take a few steps in their shoes. So my advice would be make sure you got the basics, understand how lawyers actually work, um, how they do their day-to-day jobs and their secretaries and their paralegals and their support staff as well. Because, you know, unless you're a true solo, you don't do things alone. So understanding the ecosystem of people and how they're using services and tools is important. And then being able to recommend suggestions. And sometimes it doesn't mean saying, hey, you need to look at this tool, this service or this company. Sometimes it's as simple as being able to say, well, you know, you guys all have iPads. And instead of printing out those pre-bills, why don't you have the office manager just email them to you and you can mark it up on your iPad and then email it back to her. And we could avoid all that printing. We don't have to wait till you get into the office. And, you know, so there's really simple things. And then from there, as you sort of gain that knowledge and expertise, you'll move further up that chain of being able to make better suggestions, more strategic suggestions. Um, I mean, thinking about how you help a law firm two years down the road is really powerful, being able to say, hey, if we start doing this at the end of 2017 and begin 2018 doing this, and then in the you know, first quarter, we've got that up and running and implemented, and then, then we can introduce this next practice or this procedure is really powerful and fun and appreciated. I mean, it is the type of job where you feel good at the end of the day when you walk out and you know that you've helped people do their jobs better and maybe they like their jobs a little bit better because it just became a little easier or more fun through technology. Well, great. I think that's a great note to end on. I want to thank you again, Adriana, for taking the time to speak with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. So thank you again, Adriana, for joining us today. If people want to learn more, she can be found at lawtechpartners.com. And if you liked what you heard today on the podcast or any other of the Legal Rebels Trailblazers podcasts, find and rate us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people with similar interests find us as well. I'm Jason Tache for the American Bar Association Journal. Until next time.
If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.